Hello and welcome to another Urban Health Council show here on City Centric. This episode is a conversation between Centric's Araceli Camargo and Dr. Juwaria Kwasi and Sue Chen, a PhD candidate, both at University of Edinburgh, on how they see equitable engagement with communities as researchers and practitioners. This conversation is part of the Urban Health Council's latest stream of work on communities, lived experience and health. Two reports on this topic have been produced, which are open to be read online at urbanhealthcouncil.com. Please do go check them out after this conversation if you haven't already. And now for the show. Okay, so Suen, um, if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is uh, Suen Chen, and I'm a final year PhD student at the University of Edinburgh Business School. My research area is in impact investing and social entrepreneurship, and I'm very um are concerned about the, the climate climate crisis. And also I think climate crisis is not just an environmental crisis, it's more of a social crisis. And that's where the capital or the investment can help to support the sustainable ventures or sustainable projects uh, of the ones we were working on. Perfect. Thank you. And Juaria, your introduction, please. Yeah, so I'm going to be starting my PhD in global health at University of Edinburgh. I'm the founder of Planetary Health Labs there. And my research looks at systems thinking and planetary health, particularly looking at the human systems component with a natural systems perspective and thinking of how we can measure the complexity within the human systems um, research cohort. And um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing so far. Um, and we take a particularly network perspective, so understanding things from a social network analysis perspective, looking at action research, building communities from the ground, um, and thinking about how we can build and bridge different siloed groups of research um, groups so that we can bring them together to design interventions. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you very much for, for joining us. So the first question, and it doesn't matter who answers, who answers it first, what do you guys from your specific context think is the value of community expertise? And by community expertise, I mean their actual their own specific knowledges and their own specific scholarships that each community inherently has. And by inherently, I mean that all of us have an ability to build up an expertise about the lives that we lead. Um, so given that context and those definitions, what do you think is the value of community expertise in research and also specifically within the research of climate change or en um, environmental um, justice? Would yeah. you like to answer this one? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to give it a start. I think the value of uh, community expertise can lies in three aspects. And the first is to inspire, to inspire the research as social, uh, social scientists ourselves, because they know the best, the people working in the field, they know best how things are like, they know the things at the front end. Because I have to admit, sometimes the research can lead practice, but sometimes the research can be behind practice, because we have to induct or deductively uh, generalize what the practice has been doing. So inspire is the first value. And the second one, I think, is to enable research because to conduct really relevant and valuable research, we need to gather valid data. We cannot just sit in the ivory tower and in front of our laptop and imagine things <laughs> up or make things up. So I have to actually uh, engage with the community and then that's how they enable us to collect the data and analyze data and see things from their perspective. Yeah. So 
so that's the second value. The third one is empower us to do what we wanted to do and to make it possible uh, to realize our yeah, the dream of our research. And also, I think sometimes what uh, research researchers miss is that it's a two-way process when dealing with community. Sometimes we think we want to guide them with our research result, but actually it's them guiding us. So as the word interview suggests from a etymology perspective, so it's interview. So it's to enter the view of another person and see their world. So this, this, this two-way process is mutually enhancing in terms of how we see the world and how we, yeah, so I think those are the, the, the three values of, at least the three values of the community expertise. Awesome, thank you so much for that. Um, Jorari, do you wanna go? Yeah, so I think from a development perspective, it's very important to work with communities that you are designing interventions for. Um, and as Sue mentioned, there's some things that you can miss if you don't work with the cultures that are already there. Um, planetary health in itself as a field has grown from a very rich tradition, from very ancient civilizations. Um, and one of the things that we need to remember is that we're not repeating the process of dispossessing people from their legacy or their history when we're thinking of interventions, we're thinking of including them because that in itself is not only cultural capital, but it helps work, in, it helps give broad drives insight into designing interventions, but it also enables us to come from a place as a researcher where you realize that you're doing a problem-driven iterative approach. So you're going back and forth and you're working with the communities. Sometimes when you're developing a solution from the outside and you're trying to impose it on a group of people, it doesn't work that way. And a lot of development work fails because of that very one core reason. Um, so I think, yeah, in that perspective, it's very, very important from a research uh, angle. But from another approach, if you look at the UN and systems thinking interventions that have been designed with working with communities, you notice they work with ecosystem hubs. So they work with developing a research nexus between first world researchers and researchers on the ground in the third world who are gathering that data step by step and then going back and forth. Um, we need to be able to support researchers on the ground in those countries as well. Um, because anytime when there is, you know, like say with COVID, with zoonotic diseases, they can raise the alarm earlier for us so that we know what's happening there. Um, and actually last week I had a conversation with somebody working in Guatemala. Um, she's a researcher, she's an ophthalmologist. And she mentioned that we can see that humans and nature were colliding. And the closer we get, the more we need sort of surveillance systems within these countries so that we can alert researchers and scientists can start doing more preemptive action as opposed to preventative action. So that's, mm. that's really important. Yeah, really, really, really good points. Um, so then, then the next question is, from your own experience, whether it's in observation or in first person or sorry, first practice is what do you recommend or what have you seen as best methods of engagement? And also, or, or it could be that there, these methods are yet to be implemented, but you would want to see them implemented. There's a lot of research in the management school and strategy school around social network analysis, so building network of researchers and coming together with stakeholder perspectives and all these tools like scenario planning, sense making, all these system thinking tools. And they've become really popular, but at the end of the day, when you're working in silos at the end, and you're in your own research court, you're either ambitiously pushing for your agenda and then accepting that you have to work alongside another researcher in another field, noticing the overlap in your research outputs and theirs means that you're competing in a different way. You're competing for a collective, you know, a collective movement in a way, right? Um, so 
I think the biggest thing I would say is, yeah, the network analysis is important. Um, if it's implemented, it would be great. Um, I've seen a lot of researchers work around this, but I haven't seen a cohort framework for different sort of bodies of research uh, perspectives being put together in a cohort whole. I've heard the word systems thinking over and over again, but I've not seen the rigor being balanced with that sort of ex expansive outlook, if that makes sense, right? So the big picture and the small picture combined together in some kind of balance. Um, that's really important um, because as we obviously go on with our own niches, we forget the bigger picture and that's that's really important. Yeah, yeah I would agree. And, and also I think I have to say there's no silver bullet. There's no one single best approach. It's more like our attitude as a researcher and also our willingness to engage with a community that matters than specific type of methods or tool. For example, uh, one of my papers is about impact measurement. So at the beginning of the, the writing the paper, I was thinking, oh, I want to find a standardized framework to measure the impact. So we have like a golden standard rule and see how impact can be measured. But during that process, I realized we have so many existing frameworks already, like social return investment, the UNSDG framework or cost benefit analysis. So all these tools, they have their own pros and cons. And it's during the process of working with uh, different stakeholders that we enhance our understanding and we know better of what we want to achieve. It's those more intangible things that create value in the end. Yeah. So I would say this, the best approach would depending on who you are working with, what you want to achieve and why you're doing what you have been doing. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was actually leading to the next question. Um, so all of us obviously are human beings and we are speaking to other human beings. So we have to think about the psychological and cognitive and social aspects to this work. Um, are there, is there any, any again, any, any methods of best practice or just simple ways that you relate to the community? So for example, for us in the report, we're talking a lot about consent and what, how do we define consent? You know, how do you specifically, but how do you become invited, right? Because it's such an unnatural thing to just show up and go, we're going to research you. Even if it is well-intentioned, <laughs> um, it is because we wouldn't do that in a normal social interaction. I wouldn't go up to you as a stranger without first introducing myself and having some form of rapport with you and say, this is what I think about your life. And even again, even if it's well-intentioned. So are there any social behavior or even perhaps philosophical um, aspects that you think about when, when interacting with communities? I think um, you've got to think about why people would be hesitant to begin with, right? Because there's a lot of research historically in the sociological and the social science that is dehumanizing. And it is ghettoizing groups of people with particular ethnic backgrounds. So they feel like they're already having to either play the victim card or they're being put in pigeonholed in a, in a certain way and stereotyped. Um, and obviously the media, there's always a problem with planetary health and climate change news is that it's always conflicting with mainstream media. So people, you know, when you talk to them about planetary health issues and you're saying you're doing research around that, they you know, they find it, you know, they just shrug their shoulders. I was talking to a scientist working in resilient agriculture yesterday, Laura, she's on our lab, and she was mentioning how she works in the deep south and she deals with people who voted for Trump. And every time she talks to them about agricultural practices, according to what would make them more productive, that she gets a backlash, even death threats, because they are not used to understanding the language. They think it's 
that think it's liberal nonsense, right? Mm. Um, and some of that comes down to communication science, right? How is the science being communicated? And are we understanding that nexus between our own health and the environment? And I feel like people haven't brought those two together in a way. Um, and had they done that, had we been more politer and honorable to different cultures out there, um, because they all have had some kind of tradition that has talked about the environment, be built on that cultural capital, then there, there is leeway to do more research with them. But I, I'm not surprised that they're watching you suspiciously when you say that. I mean, there's great ethnographic research about working with communities, but it's always dangerous. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's it's remarkable what you guys are doing in Centric Lab. But yeah, there's no one fixed solution to that. It's going to be an upward struggle. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it's when you think about doing research with the community, it's always good to put yourself in their shoes. So what can they benefit from your research rather than think what can I get from them? And because they're, it, for us, we were in a privileged stage. We don't need to worry about many things in life as a researcher. So we, we kind of can do, have the freedom to do whatever research we want. But for them, it's their life and they have to, their life depends on that. They have to make money. They have other things. So what we're asking them is their time and their involvement is actually a huge cost for them. They could have better use of their time and energy. And maybe there's some researchers already did research with them. That would be very annoying to keep receiving different groups of researchers yeah so i think show empathy and respect would be would be very important during this interaction yeah that's a really good point and we cover that of what's in it for them and that's a big big question right that if especially if you're just going straight for the for the academic perspective as in you for you it's just another research paper right it's another tick to 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 another box to take. Um, and we used an example in the report about the cancer corridor that is now being investigated or researched for the last 13, 15 years to really no effect directly to the community. So as scientists, there's, there's more clear links being made between disease and contamination but there's been no structural systemic change to the people on the ground. And, and we do have to think about how does that feel, right? That we're, we're just working on a hypothesis. They are trying to really figure out how do they change the law? How do they stop this contamination happening in their, in their backyard? And obviously, how do they stop themselves and their neighbors from, from dying from the worst consequences of it? And, and I don't, from, what, from our vantage point, it's a really good word, the empathic bit, that we don't really, it's it's really absent, right? That we go in very clinically and not relate to them as, as people. Um, and then because of that, I'm just going to ask one final question. Um, because you've instigated that of, and we've been also thinking about this, that, and we're changing our methodologies because of it. And the fact that centric is we wait for the community to to come to us or or we ask for the permission, but specifically on the objective, right? So for example, right now there's a community called Wally's Quarry um, um, in the north. And we're gonna do we're gonna do an introductory letter to say we listened into one of your town halls with Public Health England and the Environmental Agency. These are our thoughts majority, we agree with you, and these are our rebuttal points, and then see if they want to engage with us any further in research. Um, but they were making it explicit that 
exactly what their gains are versus we're just going to write a paper. We just want to see um, how this is affecting you. So the last question is on the voyeurism of science. What do we do with it? Is it okay? Should we stop it? That we just go in and, sim and simply observe because that's such a key cornerstone to science, right? We're observance and not be there for the environmental justice part of it. Yeah, I, th I think it's a... I think it's probably not not an either or question about if we should help them to solve the problem or simply observe. It can be a both and question. So we can observe and at the same time help them solve the problem. So there is this insider outsider perspective as well. And it also if we take this to the, the slightly higher higher level, it may have to do with our own identity and our resp responsibility as a researcher. So who who has the power or the authority to define the problem. Because sometimes when we uh, write our research question, we may not consider those community people in the community, but rather we should they should be the ones define the problem because they know the problem better. And that would actually give us some challenge to, yeah, to impact our ego because uh, academics, some of us have a big ego. So that, that's really a- I've never come across any of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, interestingly, one of the um, projects I'm working on now is there is an ER3 initiative by a journal called JBV Insights. So it's called Entrepreneurship Rapid Response. So they have a new format of writing papers by including a problem owner in each mm -hmm. of the papers. So they include one problem owner, if it's a policymaker or a practitioner or a community member, it doesn't matter. So whoever has the problem, they work together with the research team. And depending on that research team, the lead author would invite three to four experts in the field so they can solve the problem together. For example, one of the projects is done in Baltimore. The paper is already published about because Baltimore is one of the most uh, violent cities or dangerous cities in the US. So the crime rate is high. So the lead author wanted to see the positive spoil spoilover effect of entrepreneurship, see if entrepreneurship can help to reduce the crime rate. So actually they find a problem owner as incubator in the city. So they worked with incubator and then they explored the problem from different levels of perspective and they made some practical recommendations. What's striking in their project is during my interview with the lead author, Mike, he thought they had brilliant ideas at the beginning. And he said, we had a list of recommendations to the incubator before talking to him. And then he realized that the incubator has already done most of their recommendations. So, yeah, so he thought he had a brilliant idea, but actually they are doing that. That's when he realized that they need to work with these real people who really have this problem, then make some more practical uh, uh, like recommendations. Yeah. That's a really great case study. Thank you for that, uh, Suen. Um, and um, yeah, George, you want to add? Um, I think it comes down to funding as well, because at one point, yeah, we, we are at a stage where we do leave a midway after three-year pilot project, right? So they have, we have a bad reputation, especially in global health, right? We spot something going wrong. We count the number of dead and when we publish it and say, this is our suggestion. We never work with the science of what the structures in place are. And this is a question to do with equality and a question to do with 
linking the science with activism, which you did so well in Centric Lab, that I actually didn't see for some time, right? So a lot of the social entrepreneurial journal about social innovation, helping people bottom up, um, it is still coming again from the nexus of being privileged, right? So when we're thinking about, okay, we've got funding for a certain amount of time, we're going to tell you what the problem and people when you're working with them even if you're doing a participatory research methodology which you do in global health they know you're going to leave them after three years right and then they know you're going to suggest okay this is what you need to do um and that's the thing right and then what we end up doing in global health i'm not sure is when we reproduce knowledge we reproduce the same kind of studies 100 years several years down because we don't go back and think oh wait this study was there we should have scaled it right it could have scaled it could have been something innovative um, so it's something unsustainable about that academic model, right? Um, and that in of itself is what really gets to me. Because, you know, when we do, we've done research studies in Pakistan on neonatal maternal care. Um, we talked about healthy eating for pregnant women. There's a certain stage where we just stop, pause, and then we go back and we don't, we don't care, right? Um, this is very, very important for people who have witnessed researchers behaving like this, which is not our fault. It shows that we don't really care. It just means that we're tick-boxing. Um, and just bolstering our, our our academic credentials. So I think, yeah, I think there's definitely something about the ivory tower model, but I think there's something unsustainable relying so much on funders at times, right? So that's yeah. my take. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I mean, the, the funding mechanism is plays a big role. And um, this is the reason, I would say, or the crooks of why Centric is modeled the way that it is, because we don't want to be beholden on those kind of systems so we can be more of the people. But that also means a lot more extra work that I would say most scientists wouldn't have that. And to be honest, we're a complete anomaly in the way that we were created. So we also, <laughs> so we're now working backwards to try to figure out the methods and the practices. So centric isn't an anomaly, but it becomes a Me possibility. Too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, guys, thank you so much. I'm going to, I'm going to press stop on the recording. This show and the work of the Urban Health Council wouldn't have been possible without the support of funders and contributors. We'd like to thank the businesses, Lendlease, Matter Architecture, Aseni Projects, MAP, the Human Nature Partnership, Town, as well as the National Lottery Community Fund, whose contribution has allowed us to delve deeper into community health and begin creating healing futures. We'd also like to thank the following generous individuals, Nate Tyler, Robert Stark, Carl McFadden, Claire Delmar, Jake Robinson, Matthew Pembry, David Smith, Lucy Stewart, Marketa Nosilova, Dominic Campbell, Magali Thompson, James Pellet, and those who wish to remain anonymous, who have all become supporters of the independent science being produced at Century Lab and the Urban Health Council. If this is your first time listening to the show, please head over to urbanhealthcouncil.com to check out more. And if you can, please consider becoming a supporter. Thanks. Bye.